0: This episode is brought to you by Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill is an easy-to-use mobile and web solution that truly simplifies the way you do medical billing. Join over 1,500 physicians already using our billing software to save time, boost productivity, and earn more. Visit drbill.ca. That's dr-bill.ca for more information. High-flow nasal oxygen is a new and unique oxygen delivery method with rapid uptake into many fields of acute care medicine. I'm Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm speaking with two of the authors of a practice article on high-flow nasal oxygen therapy in adults with hypoxemia. The article is published in CMAJ. Dr. Michael Sklar and Dr. Levina Munshi have joined me from Toronto to discuss. Hello to both of you. Hi, how are you doing?
1: Hi there, thanks for having me.
0: Great to have you both. So first off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are?
1: Sure. Um, My name is Michael Sklar. I'm an adult critical care medicine fellow at the University of Toronto. I did my anesthesia training first, also at the U of T. And I became interested in the mechanisms and understanding of hypoxemic respiratory failure and some of the therapies that we can use to treat patients in the ICU and the emergency department. And I've been working primarily with Laurent Brochard in the physiology realm and with Lavina Munshi from the uh, clinical standpoint.
2: And I'm Lavina Munshi. I'm a critical care physician and clinician investigator. And I work at Mount Sinai Hospital at the University of Toronto. Um, and I have an interest in acute respiratory failure, Oxygen therapies and um, specifically immunocompromised and also oncologic critically ill patients.
0: So, welcome to both of you. Let's start off with defining what we're talking about here. So, high flow nasal oxygen therapy is relatively new. What is it for listeners who are not familiar with it?
2: So, high flow nasal cannula, as you mentioned, is a fairly new oxygen delivery device and it delivers oxygen via a nasal prong interface and has three very unique structural features. So um, the first is that it allows for oxygen delivery at much higher flows. So as you know, through our conventional oxygen delivery systems, we typically deliver a particular concentration of oxygen, either through nasal prongs or face mask, but at a limited flow rate, and therefore ambient air may get entrained. But with high flow nasal cannula across adults, Oxygen can be delivered at flow rates even as high as 40 to 60 liters per minute, minimizing the risk of dilution of your oxygen delivery with ambient air. Now, the second unique feature is that the oxygen is heated and humidified. And the third unique property is the nasal prong tubing, and it allows for the delivery of a higher amount of oxygen without that face mask interface which may minimize any claustrophobia associated with the use of a face mask. So these three features may result in some unique physiologic changes, particularly in the setting of respiratory distress or acute hypoxemic respiratory failure.
0: So you've answered some of this already, but what are some of the other similarities and differences of high flow nasal oxygen therapy to conventional oxygen therapy?
1: I'm going to expand a little bit on what Levina has already talked about. And so although this device might look like fairly standard nasal prongs, the performance characteristics and how it works is actually very unique. Conventional oxygen delivery through standard nasal prongs or a face mask, something that you might see every day in a hospital is really great for patients without high inspiratory efforts and without high inspiratory flow rates. Like we said, conventional oxygen devices are limited in their ability to generate flows, usually of around 15 liters per minute. That might be what you expect in a patient on a non-rebreather mask. The problem is that in patients who are in respiratory distress, most often generate inspiratory flow rates closer to 50 or even 60 liters per minute. And this is going to cause entrainment of room air, which as we know, has an oxygen concentration of 21%. High flow nasal oxygen is unique, and that it much better matches the inspiratory flow rates of patients, even in times of respiratory distress. And therefore, the concentration of delivered oxygen is much closer to what the clinician actually sets. On that note, high-flow nasal oxygen is unique in that flow and oxygen concentration can actually be set independently based on the clinical applications. I think another important practical difference is that the nasal prong interface is quite unobtrusive compared to face masks. This allows patients to have better communication with their care team and their families. The ability to enhance communication in patients and to have uh, have the ability to eat or drink, for example, are very important patient and family-centered considerations that may not be possible with other conventional devices.
0: So there are some aspects to this that I think might strike the average clinician as a bit counterintuitive if they're not familiar with the physiology here the way you guys are. So one aspect is the fact that uh, this is delivered through the nose, as you've described. Um, How does it work then uh, that you don't get entrainment of air through the mouth that dilutes that? Secondly, I think clinicians are used to the Venturi masks where you set this flow very precisely and it's got this number on it that's supposed to guarantee a, a percentage of oxygen. How is that less precise than just blowing oxygen through the nose even at a high rate? And, and thirdly, uh, d- doesn't that non-rebreather bag prevent that entrainment of air that you're, you're worried about for which the high flow nasal cannula is designed? Could you speak a little bit to each of those and just explain why? why indeed the physiology is better with the high flow nasal cannula?
2: So maybe to elaborate further on the potential benefit of the four higher flows, because the way I tend to think about the benefit of high flow nasal cannula in terms of the unique physiologic properties is I break it down to four. So the one is The higher flows, which I think will get at most of the questions um, you brought up, Matthew. Uh, The second is related to wash out of anatomic dead space. The third is the humidification. And the fourth is possible peak generation. So um, to further build on what Mike has said, um, if you take a patient who's on 40% face mask, for example, um, and it's hooked up to 10 liters um, of oxygen through the wall, that patient is getting 10 liters 40%. Um, However, the alveoli are not necessarily seeing 40% because if that patient is in a state of respiratory distress, and if their volumes times the respiratory rate is actually closer to 50 to 60 liters of oxygen that they're breathing over a minute, that 40% is going to be diluted down by 21% oxygen. And then the alveoli may be seeing much lower than 40%. So while we may feel good about the fact that the, we think the patient is getting 40%, they're actually getting a much lower concentration of oxygen. And similarly, with a non-rebreather, and the reservoir, room air can also be sucked in around the size of that face mask because it's not sealed closely to the patient's face. With high flow nasal cannula, the flows are potentially 40 or 50 or 60 liters of flow. And therefore, it's believed that any sort of um, FiO2 of 21% that you may be in training through your mouth, theoretically, may be washed out because of the higher concentration of oxygen that's being delivered at a much higher flow. So the second component of the high flow is also that it may overcome any nasal resistance. Um, So that's the physiologic benefit related to higher flows. But then there are further other physiologic benefits that also contribute to help reverse hypoxemia. The second may be physiologic benefit related to washout of anatomic dead space, this could decrease the patient's respiratory rate, inspiratory effort and excess oxygen utilization related to work of breathing. The third benefit is related to the heated humidification and the device is heated to 37 degrees to best match our human body temperature, as well as humidified to mimic our saturation vapor pressure. So compared to conventional oxygen delivery devices, particularly when you have 10 to 15 liters of cold air, that may be uncomfortable and result in dry nasal passages leading to mucosal injury, the heated humidification can better protect against that, and it also may be beneficial through further mucociliary clearance of secretions. And finally, those large volumes of administered cool, dry air with conventional devices may induce bronchoconstriction, whereas high flow may prevent against that and minimize bronchoconstriction. And finally, the fourth mechanism, which may result in reversal of hypoxemia, although this is debated in the literature, is the concept that the higher flows may be able to generate a small amount of positive end expiratory pressure known as PEEP. And if that is true, this may assist in recruiting alveoli that may become derecruited because of either atelectasis or pneumonia during um, acute respiratory failure. So so it's not even just the higher flows, but the higher flows as well as the dead space washout, the heated humidification and the PEEP generation combined have been shown across a series of physiologic studies to improve oxygenation, reduce inspiratory effort, lower respiratory rates, improve end expiratory lung volumes and, um, and improve patient tolerance and comfort.
0: Thank you for that. I think that explanation is very helpful. So let's move from physiology now into the clinical arena uh, a little bit more. Let's talk about the circumstances in which high flow nasal oxygen uh, is indicated or used and what clinical evidence there is that high flow nasal oxygen actually does work better than older oxygen modalities in these contexts.
1: Well this is a great question and I don't know that has necessarily has an easy answer the indications and the possible uses of the devices are really continually expanding. I think it's very important to say that we still have so much to learn about the device and who to use it on. But in the literature, there are two predominant clinical circumstances which have been well evaluated. The first is in de novo acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. And the second is on the, uh, the concept of preventing reintubation in patients in the ICU. I think the trial that really popularized high-flow nasal oxygen and brought it to the forefront was the 2015 New England Journal of Medicine publication of the Florali trial. This was a multi-center randomized control trial in 23 ICUs in France and Belgium. The authors aimed to determine the optimal oxygen delivery device in medical patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure. So they randomized 300 patients to receive conventional oxygen support through a non-rebreather mask, a second arm through non-invasive ventilation or BiPAP, and then a third arm with the high flow nasal oxygen. And 75% of these patients were diagnosed with either a hospital or community acquired pneumonia. In this trial, the primary outcome of interest was the intubation rate within 28 days. And this was not different among the three arms of the trial. However, patients who received the high-flow nasal oxygen had a lower 90-day mortality and significantly reduced days of mechanical ventilation. I do think it is important to note, however, that the actual number of deaths were small and the study wasn't powered to detect a mortality difference. However, in a post-hoc analysis of the trial, the authors found that the more severely hypoxemic patients, those with a P to F ratio of less than 200, high-flow nasal cannula resulted in lower intubation rates compared to both oxygen and non-invasive ventilation. And the results of these trials were then further confirmed across two systematic reviews and meta-analyses, one of which was published in the CMAG in 2017, that found lower intubation rates in patients treated with high-flow nasal cannula. And then I think outside of hypoxemic respiratory failure, high-flow nasal oxygen may be useful in select patients' after extubation in the intensive care unit. High flow nasal oxygen and non-invasive ventilation were compared in a randomized control trial of 600 patients in which high flow nasal cannula was administered for 24 hours after extubation compared with non-invasive ventilation, and the rates of reintubation were actually not different between the two groups, which suggests that there may be a role for high flow nasal oxygen in some of these patients.
0: So those are the benefits that we've we've seen in studies of high flow nasal oxygen. How about the uh, caveats? Are there any words of caution for clinicians about using high flow nasal oxygen?
2: Yes, this is actually a really important question. So we have to remember that because of its physiologic properties and potentially more reliable alveolar delivery of high inspired oxygen concentrations, there are patients that require high flows and high oxygen through high flow nasal cannula are actually quite sick and they could become quite hypoxic without that therapy despite how comfortable they may look on the high flow nasal cannula device. So from a monitoring standpoint, if they were to deteriorate further due to the underlying lung condition leading to more hypoxemia, they likely have very little reserve and the team would need to act quickly to evaluate why they're deteriorating and potentially be ready to escalate to mechanical ventilation or if the device was inadvertently disconnected and it went unrecognized, they they could be at risk of becoming very hypoxemic very quickly. So at this time, if high flows and high oxygen concentrations are being used with this device, we feel that it likely should be administered in a monitored setting, whether it be an emergency department, intensive care unit or intermediary care unit or post-op recovery unit. And then the second thing um, that's important to highlight is that there's some important practical considerations um, surrounding transportation. So because of the very high flow rates that this device can operate at, it's actually not ideal or suitable for transportation around the hospital as it could quickly drain most oxygen cylinders. And so this is important to consider when physicians may be wanting to send patients for other tests or interventions in other areas of the hospital.
0: All right, and I I notice explicitly you're not saying that the medical wards can go and use this on their patients in that setting. What have you seen in terms of the the resource burden for hospitals with the advent of this therapy in terms of where patients need to go when they become hypoxemic to a certain degree?
2: So I think the, the first thing that we should probably say is that there actually are no defined thresholds of cutoff that define um, at what point can a patient be on a ward safely with high flow nasal cannula um, or or not. And before I think we talk about the resource utilization, I think it's important to highlight the challenge in defining standardized guidelines or thresholds um, about its use. And I know that there are hospitals that Possibly are already using high flow uh, on the ward. But the challenge in defining standardized guidelines or thresholds here is really limited by a couple of factors, such as who the patient is and whether they're alert and oriented, what is their trajectory of respiratory failure, so have they yet overcome their peak hypoxemia um, phase or not. And then the third is exactly as you highlighted the environment and skill set of the personnel and healthcare providers around them and in particular, the availability and access to respiratory therapists. So for example, a patient's a few days into an admission for pneumonia who may have required high flow nasal cannula. They've overcome their peak hypoxemia time period. They might've been in the ICU on high flow for that. And now they're on route to recovery. That patient is very different from the new patient who's early in their acute respiratory failure and has not yet plateaued with regard to their oxygen requirements. So for the former, if they're on lower flows of high flow nasal cannula and a lower FiO2, they're alert and oriented. And there is availability of award ward respiratory therapists, the availability of frequent check-ins by either nursing staff or maybe a, a critical care rapid response team. It may be safe to use, but once again, this is very hospital dependent. And as we highlighted, an experienced respiratory therapist, a nursing team that's familiar with the device and access to a rapid response team uh, would likely be an ideal scenario where it can be taken to the ward. However, if the trajectory of that patient is not yet clear or if the patient may be delirious or if respiratory therapy access may be limited, then I would have some reservations with using it outside of a monitored setting. So I think the bottom line is that whoever is prescribing it needs to be familiar with its benefits and limitations and risks and have a team of healthcare providers, including respiratory therapists and nursing care, who are equally familiar. And, and those personnel, and particularly the respiratory therapists, need to be available at all hours of the day and not just more present during the daytime hours.
0: You've alluded to a little of this already, but are there any patients in whom um, they are too sick for high-flow nasal oxygen to be started and you would, you would uh, go to other modalities directly?
2: I think it really depends upon uh, the clinical circumstance in front of you. So if I'm bringing a patient to the ICU and the speed of deterioration with regard to their hypoxemia is at a rate where there's a rapid decline and it's coupled with features such as hypercapnia, and a decreased level of consciousness. So two mechanisms, um, certainly decreased level of consciousness, uh, but two mechanisms where it's unclear about the utility of high flow nasal cannula, that's a type of patient that I think I would probably elect to proceed with intubation and mechanical ventilation. However, if the patient has hypoxemia and does not have any additional high risk features such as level of consciousness um, or uh, worsening hypercapnia, And there is time to do a time-limited trial of high-flow nasal cannula therapy. I would consider in that circumstance, trialing the device and over the subsequent minutes to hours, evaluate the patient's response to the device. And if the patient stabilizes with regard to reversal of their hypoxemia, their respiratory rate and their heart rate, that may be something I would consider to continue to use. Uh, But once again, this would need to be done in a a monitored setting
0: like an intensive care unit. And how about local adverse effects? Are there any harms potentially associated with uh, blowing that high flow rate of oxygen into the nasopharynx of patients?
2: When you uh, look at the the multiple randomized controlled trials, um, evaluating its use, the adverse effect profile seems no more different than the other oxygen interfaces, and if anything, less risk of ulceration of the nasal bridge, which you may get with um, the face mask uh, non-invasive ventilatory devices. The the one thing that could induce a bit of discomfort, I've actually had the opportunity to try on uh, high flow nasal cannula, is that if you actually start at 60 liters of flow, it, it can be quite uncomfortable initially. So Our respiratory therapists usually start the flow off at 45 to 50 liters and then slowly titrate it up. Um, And in a patient who actually would benefit from the physiologic effects of high flow nasal cannula often can then very much tolerate uh, 60 liters of flow.
1: I'll just add two small points. Uh, We did a study recently on um, patients with cystic fibrosis testing high-flow nasal oxygen, and one of the uh, adverse uh, descriptions was that the 37 degrees Celsius was sometimes too warm, and uh, sometimes they felt That decreasing the temperature of the humidity a bit actually made the device much more tolerable. And then the second point, I think, Dr. Stanbrook, that you make a great point about is that I don't necessarily know this is an adverse event, but we don't really have great indications of high flow oxygen failure. um, And when we should consider taking a patient on very high FiO2 who may look okay and consider more invasive mechanical ventilation. So I worry that sometimes we delay. Uh, definitive intubation uh, with the use of high-flow nasal cannula, which I think is a a very important area of future research.
0: In your article, you mentioned that potential uses of high-flow nasal oxygen are still expanding. What are some other areas where people are thinking it might be beneficial? I think
1: that there are two areas in which the evidence is beginning to evolve, but is still very much in its infancy. And that would be in hypercapnic respiratory failure, and uh, secondly, in the uh, periprocedural use of high-flow nasal oxygen for conscious sedation. So I think one of the most fascinating areas of current investigation uh, surrounds the use of high-flow nasal oxygen for primarily hypercapnia, and in particular, patients with exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Traditionally, COPD is usually treated with bi-level positive pressure ventilation, or BiPAP, and that's been the uh, current optimal treatment modality, along with medical therapy, including bronchodilators and steroids. And I think we tend to uh, evaluate oxygen as primarily a support for oxygenation, uh, but as we've described, there are many non-oxygen benefits of high flow that may be particularly helpful in obstructive lung pathology. So last year, uh, our group published one of the first short-term physiological trials in which we compared patient effort and work of breathing in 15 patients with acute exacerbations of hypercapnia with cystic fibrosis. And we did a crossover randomized trial of high-flow nasal oxygen and non-invasive ventilation. And we found that in terms of the reduction of the work of breathing, um, there was no difference in high-flow versus non-invasive ventilation. And of course, they work by different mechanisms. That was a, a stepping stone into understanding the potential uses of high flow in, in, in hypercapnia. And then earlier this month, some of our colleagues in Thailand performed a similar physiological study, this time in COPD exacerbations. And they compared high flow nasal oxygen again to non invasive ventilation. And they found that overall, the difference in the work of breathing of patients between high flow and non invasive ventilation was not different. And they actually started to look for a dose response curve of the different flow rates uh, of high flow, seeing what the best flow rate might be uh, for a COPD exacerbation. And so based on these early studies and some some other small trials in the literature, we've actually started to conduct a a trial in the emergency department and ICU at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, where we want to compare the uh, physiological and patient-centered outcome effects of high-flow oxygen compared to non-invasive ventilation and acute exacerbations of COPD, and I think there's really a great potential in this population. And then briefly, I'll just mention that there is um, some preliminary evidence, but it certainly requires further um, uh, confirmation for the use of high-flow oxygen for conscious sedation uh, for procedures in the operating room, emergency departments, and endoscopy suites. And Dr. Munchi's group is actually currently conducting a pilot study evaluating use of high-flow oxygen uh, during fiber optic bronchoscopy to see if it can reduce desaturation or post-procedure hypoxemia.
0: This is a new therapy that's arrived in our hospitals already, uh, and as you've just described, there may be more and more places and ways in which it can be used going forward. I want to thank you both for providing this detailed discussion of it with our listeners today. Thanks.
2: Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. We appreciate
0: it. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Sklar and Dr. Lavina Munshi. Dr. Sklar is an anesthesiologist and adult critical care medicine fellow at the University of Toronto. Dr. Munshi is a critical care physician at Sinai Health System, University of Toronto. To read the practice article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.